It's the uh, worst investment you've ever made. I can think of quite a few investments that I've, I've made that were not wise choices. That uh, Sometimes it's that donut in the break room, right, that's been there since Tuesday. <laughs> and you think, you know, it looks like it should still taste good. And you go to eat it, and it's so stale that you're like, that wasn't really worth it. Well, today we're actually looking at a passage that kind of uh, highlights some of those types of choices. And the title that I, that I uh, made this sermon is The Law of Diminishing Returns. It's an economic term talking about typically more to do with production lines and how much production you can make in a certain time frame and when does the, the, uh, the limit of what you're making lower to the point where the energy put into it doesn't make any sense. Uh, so the uh, Google definition is it's referring to a point at which the level of profits or benefits gained is less than the amount of money or energy invested. Say for instance, that donut that I ate in the break room from Tuesday, the energy that it takes to burn that off is definitely not worth the flavor that you're getting from a stale donut, right? Uh, I've definitely had those scenarios where you go to somebody's house and there's like a potluck and you're like, oh, that looks really good. And you eat it and you're like, I know that this has a ton of calories, but it tastes disgusting. <laughs> Why am I still eating this, right? Maybe that's just me. Uh, but when it comes to other things that we do, we make choices, we make decisions that sometimes you look at and you're like, the investment, the energy that I just put into this doesn't equal the return that I should be getting from it. Well, Colossians starts off uh, basically giving the purpose for why Paul is writing uh, to the Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, when we, when we look at that today, Paul gives us a, a reason why he's writing. He's writing to the people of Colossae because he's never met them. And so how do you communicate to somebody back in that time is you write them a letter. And so the first thing uh, that that we see from this letter is, is kind of the, the whole purpose for why Paul is writing to the Colossians. Because here's the thing, I think we all make investments, we all make decisions on what you're going to do with your day, with your week, with your month, with your year, with your life. We make decisions, we make choices. And do those choices end up having the return for the investment that you're trying to, uh, to do, that you're trying to put into it. It's an interesting thing that when you look at the, this situation with Paul, what he decides that he's going to do with his life isn't a decision that he's made uh, lightly. He was wholeheartedly persecuting the Jewish people until Jesus came into his life and changed his life forever. And that transformation caused him to do a 180, and he started this, this path, this, this uh, course to try to share the good news of Jesus Christ to people, the interesting thing, some that he never even met. He didn't even know. Well, in the text today, we're going to see through three truths that help inform the choices that we make with your everyday choices as well as the big decisions in your life. Because I think sometimes we look at God's uh, plans and we look at some of the things that he desires for us and we say, well, God, God's in, in the big decisions. 
Like he wants to know what's going on. But really, everything that we do, everything, every aspect of our life, God has the ability to influence different situations in your life. The investments that you are making can have a huge impact. And sometimes we don't think about the day-to-day life that we have. We think about just the large uh, impacts. But I think there's a couple of truths that need to be uh, adjusted in how we see life and how we see uh, the world in order for that to be true. The first thing that we see, the first truth that we see is that people are valuable. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says this, I want you to know how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. He doesn't even know these people. Now, a lot of times we think about struggling for people that you know. And we all struggle for people that we love. We struggle for the people that are in our family. We struggle for our our close friends. We struggle for people. And and I love seeing how the church kind of supports that that, uh, framework, that we struggle for people. We see people who are in need that go to our church and we love them and we we care for them. And we see people who uh, we see uh, in our family and we're like, oh, I... I hurt for you, and I really, if there's anything I can do, I want to help you. But here's Paul talking to a different people group in Colossae. They, these are some, some Jewish people, but a lot of Greek people, people that weren't part of his circle of friends. And he was struggling for them. Struggling for them because not that... He knew somebody who knew somebody, so he's like, well, I care for the friend, so therefore I care for you. It's he's struggling for them because people are valuable. And so when I was reading this, it caused me to, to, to really reflect on people. Do I struggle for people I don't know? I don't know. Not as much as I probably should. Not as much as it seems like Paul's struggling. Str- Paul struggles uh, to pray for the people. And I think about the people I don't know. Am I praying for the people I don't know? I spend a lot of time praying for you guys. I spend a lot of time praying for the students in our church. I spend a lot of time praying for former students that I have. I spend a lot of time praying for for friends and family. But am I praying for the Muslims in in Burbank? Am I I praying for people that I I don't really know? Am I praying for uh, the people that I don't really connect with? Are we doing that? Are we struggling as a church to be praying and uh, caring for these people? He also, uh, I think Paul struggles for great con- with great concern for these people. He wants to see that they become orderly, that they, they are growing and they're developing in Christ. And so as I read this, I looked at Paul and the, uh, the example that he gave. And man, it really caused me to, to wrestle with this in my own heart. Do I struggle for people because they're valuable? Do I look at people the way that God looks at people? One of the things that I think causes me to hurt is when I look at the news and I see, uh, and part of this is because I work with students, and I, I know that a lot of our students have different life situations, but I, I see the, the people just out 
on the outskirts of the city, not too far away from us. I think of the people who uh, live in impoverished homes, people who live in uh, fatherless uh, situations, and they don't have the support that, that we have. And I think of the, the, the kids that don't have the guidance, and that makes my heart break. <laughs> and uh, that was one of the things that I think God really worked on me as I was looking at Paul's struggle. I was like, they're not that far away. <laughs> and there are so many people, so many kids, so many teens who just, if they had somebody in their life that says, hey, I think you're valuable. I think you're important. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I think that there's something that God wants for you. How many of their lives would be changed? Just knowing that they have one person in their life that thinks they're really valuable, not because of what they can get out of the relationship, but because of the who they are, that they're a person, because they're valuable. The uh, high school students, uh, as, as I look at this, one of the things that we're going to be doing in the, the near future this summer, we're, we're taking a trip to uh, New Orleans, uh, to, to the outskirts of New Orleans. I've got a, uh, a connection that lives in Mandeville, and he's the pastor of a church called Mandeville Bible Church, just on the outskirts of New Orleans. And we're going to go and we're going to share the love of Christ to people in New Orleans, people we don't know. We're going to help with tornado relief since they just uh, endured some, some pretty bad storms. We're going to help with hurricane relief, which is crazy, but they're still dealing with hurricanes, uh, the consequences of Hurricane Katrina and uh, a hurricane that came after the Katrina. Uh, but we're going to go down there, even though we don't know them, even though we don't uh, have a connection with them other than I know a guy who's a, a pastor out there. And we're going to go share the love of Christ with the people there. I think that's a step. I think we, uh, we need to look at the value of people, and as a church, that means we respond. We, we send missionaries out, and we, we support missionaries, and I think that's, a, that's an amazing thing. But how are we uh, viewing people as valuable? Because for Paul, he struggled for them. This includes, uh, by the way, raising support and asking for prayer and uh, seeking guidance from you. We're going to do some evangelism training, so if anybody would like to help with any of those aspects, we're definitely going to be seeking you guys out. Um, but in addition, we also want to provide evangelism training. So maybe some of the things that we, the reason why we don't love the people, the, the, we don't find them as valuable, is because we, just, we do find them valuable. We just struggle with being able to communicate that. And so as we, uh, as we do our, our training for the missions trip, we're also going to try to make opportunities to do some evangelism training uh, for everybody as well. The second truth that we see from Paul is not only is he struggling for the people in Colossae and the, the people in Laodicea and others who've never seen him face to face, never seen him in the flesh, the people who never wouldn't be able to recognize him from the average guy on the street, is that the gospel is rich with value. So not only are people valuable, but the good news of Jesus Christ is valuable. Paul continues in chapter 2, in verse 2, and he says this, My purpose, the purpose for why he struggles for the people, the purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love 
so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The gospel is rich in value because it shows God's value when he takes somebody who's broken and transforms them. The gospel is, a, is the good news. I mean, that's the, the word itself means the good news. And we talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. It can take somebody like Paul, who's going completely the wrong direction, and turn them back. It can take people like me, who is going the complete wrong direction, and turn me back. And it can take people like you, who are going the wrong direction, and turn you back. It transforms our lives and makes us to the point where we are understanding a different perspective on life. It helps us not just understand a different perspective on life, but understand the importance of loving people and valuing people. Because they're not that much different than we were. <laughs> we once were sinners. We once were broken. We once were going the wrong direction. For Paul even, he once was killing Christians. He was persecuting them. And now he has the love for Christ that completely transformed his life. The gospel is rich with value. So when we look at our days and we look at our choices and we look at the investments that we make, are we putting the gospel at the center of our life? Are we putting the good news of Jesus Christ at the center of our life? Or is it that we... We're trying to achieve worldly success. Are we trying to look good in front of our friends? Are we trying to uh, uh, gain earthly wealth? For, for Paul, sharing with people he doesn't know, he's telling them that the most important thing that they can do is be... Uh, is looking at the gospel and keeping that at the center of their life because it changes lives. We see three things. If you guys want to underline these things in your notes, go ahead and do that. If you want to underline your Bible, that's fine too. Uh, but there's three things that we see. Is that The first thing we see is that it brings hope to broken hearts. And we see that because Paul says, my purpose is that you may be encouraged in heart. So underline encouraged in heart. His purpose in sharing the gospel is that it brings hope to broken hearts. It gives us encouragement to our heart. It, it's rich in our heart in that it takes our brokenness and helps us to be healed. It encourages us in our heart. The other thing that we see that it does is that it uh, unites us in love. So go ahead and underline, unites in love. And the third thing that we see that it does is it changes uh, their perspective. Because it says that they may have the full riches of complete understanding. So go ahead and underline, full riches of complete understanding. To take people who are completely different. I mean, Colossae itself, they were partially Jewish people, partially Greek people, but it was kind of this financial hub 
uh, of the area. They did uh, a lot of dealing with fabrics and, and other things that were there. And so uh, there were a lot of different people that were there. And Paul doesn't even know them, values them, and wants them to see the richness of the gospel. He wants them to see the value of having your heart transformed by Christ. And it takes people who were all different, all different walks of life, all different shapes and sizes, and takes them and puts them in a position where they can now grow. They can be united in love. They can grow together and they become like-minded. Not being exactly the same, but being able to share the good news of Christ with others around them and have a partnership with one another and have things that are in common. It's a pretty amazing thing to see that. Um, I think for us, we also need to see the perspective of our understanding changing. Our, our understanding, for a lot of times, we look at different areas of our life and we try to put value in that. We try to find our identity in those things. Whether it's work, who are you? I'm a plumber. I, that's who I am, right? Or I'm an accountant or whatever. That's not your identity. The understanding that you're getting when you become a follower of Jesus Christ is that you now understand the purpose of this life because you're never going to find satisfaction in your job. I mean, there are things that you can do that you can find accomplishment and you can find enjoyment in. You can say, that was great. I'm glad we got that, that completed. I finally got, I've been working on that for a while. I finally got that to the point where I'm satisfied in it. But there's going to be another problem that starts the next day, right? It's never going to find, you're never going to find true satisfaction in your employment. You're never going to find true satisfaction in your family. You're never going to find true satisfaction in finances. And we can go through every one of those and look at the, the struggles that go along with it. But in all reality, the only way that you're going to understand this life is when you look at the creator of this life and you look at the game plan that he has for you and the manual that he prepared for you in the scriptures and you understand him. And when you understand what God is doing, this knowledge of the richness of the gospel helps you to see a different perspective on life. You're transformed. Your mind is transformed. And by your mind being transformed, you're able to understand the purpose of this life. And it helps you when things don't go well in your job, in your family, in your finances. Because you now understand the knowledge of the richness of Christ. The third truth that we see in this passage is that the world's arguments quickly diminish in value. Paul says it this way in verse 4 and 5. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Those are arguments, by the way, that sound fine, right? It's like, oh, that sounds like a good idea. That, that's a fine argument. I like that argument. That's but the truth in fine-sounding arguments is that something can sound fine, but on the foundation of everything, it's just, it's kind of like when you work on a house, right? 
and you, you, you bought your house and you're looking at it and you're like, oh, cool, all the drywall looks really nice. And then you're like, I really want to, to do something with the, the paint here. It just looks like there's a little bit that I could scrape off. There's a little bubbling going on. I'm just going to scrape this and then we're going to repaint it. And you go to do that. And on the outside, you're like, it looks pretty good. But once you start scraping and chipping away, you realize that underneath that, everything is falling apart behind it. It looks good on the outside, but on the inside, it's crumbling and rotting. Heidi and I know this. <laughs> We've been working on our house for way too long on things that were, on the outside, looked really nice. And uh, on the inside, a lot of things were slowly rotting away. The world's arguments will slowly rot away. Maybe it's quick, actually. Sometimes you're like, wow, that sounded really good yesterday, but today, that, I'm glad I didn't buy into that one. And sometimes it takes a while. Sometimes that fine-sounding argument will look good for a while. And sometimes you even regret not buying into it. But in the long run, you know that that fine-sounding argument will fall short and will crumble away. There was a, uh, a guy uh, named Blaise Pascal. How many of you guys have ever heard of Blaise Pascal? He was a mathematician and a few other things. Uh, Pascal had an issue with uh, his, his life. He was buying into the world's arguments. He became a really bad gambler <laughs> as well as enjoyed the, the lifestyle of a, uh, a wealthy individual without Jesus. We'll just leave it at that. And after a while, he realized he wasn't finding enjoyment in all of those things. He thought, you know, if I could uh, just, just find peace, find joy, then I would be satisfied. And eventually, that argument needed to be removed, and he became, uh, somebody shared the gospel with him, and he trusted in Jesus as his Savior. He knew the consequences of his sin, he said, I, I'm broken and I need Jesus to save me and only then will I find peace. And you know what happened to Pascal is that he trusted in Christ and his life was transformed. But here's the thing, when you trust in Christ and you're pursuing those things, right, all of the friends around you are typically just like you. And so all of his friends continued to do the same things that he was doing, and he wanted to be able to talk to them about trusting in Jesus, but they didn't, just, they didn't buy it. They're like, we enjoy our life right now. Sure, it might not give us ultimate satisfaction, but we enjoy the satisfaction we get in the temporary. And so Pascal started working on some, some uh, philosophical thought, and he actually didn't uh, write it all. Uh, he didn't actually pr uh, publish his, his work. Somebody came together and collected it and then put it together, and so if you're interested in reading 17th century philosophy, <laughs> feel free to pick up Penseis, which is French. I, they probably translated it in English. Um, but uh, Pascal basically said, you know, if all things were considered equal, all religions and everything were considered equal, and uh, either you trust in the Christian God or you don't trust in the Christian God. 
there's four ultimate outcomes, is what he says. And here's the thing. Before I get too far, I don't want you to go off thinking that I'm saying all things are considered equal. Because I think we do have evidence. We have plenty of evidence to show that Jesus is God. We have plenty of evidence. If you look at historical evidence, you look at uh, the history of Jesus' death and resurrection and all that was recorded. Historically, to me, I look at it and I'm like, this is clear that Jesus is God. You look at biblical evidence, you can see all of the, the, the evidence that was uh, talking about Jesus and prophesied about Jesus that ended up coming true. So biblically, you look at it and you're like, Jesus is the Messiah. You can look at the cosmological evidence and you can say, the earth or the, the universe is constantly expanding. And if it's constantly expanding, there has to, if you go back, it has to have a starting point, right? So you can look at the cosmological evidence and say, God makes sense, and Jesus makes sense when you look at that. You can look at the biological evidence, and you can say, well, something can't come from nothing. There always has to be a starting point, so where'd the starting point come from? And you can look at the world's arguments and say, well, they don't really line up, or you can look at the scriptural evidence and say, yeah, that biologically, this makes sense, that, that God said, let there be light, and there was light, and then God said, let there be <laughs> animals, and there was animals, and then humans, and right? And you can look at the, the biological evidence, and to me, I look at that and say, there's a lot of evidence that say that it makes sense. So when I say all things can, being equal, I don't really mean all things are equal, because I think you can look at the evidence that's out there, and it's so much greater than just this. But let's just assume for all of his friends that don't know Christ, for all of his friends that were atheists that thought once you die, the world goes black. And maybe you have friends and family out there who think the same thing. This is what he says. He said you have four options. You can wager for God and Christianity is ultimately proven true. How would you know that after you die? Uh, you go to the pearly gates <laughs> and uh, you realize that Christianity is true. You wager for God, and atheism is proven true. So all of the things that you did, the sacrifice, which in all reality, I don't really view it as a sacrifice, because here's another evidence. If you look at somebody who goes to church once a week, statistically, they're somebody who has more purpose in life, they're happier, and their life is more full and fulfilled. That was a study that was done by Harvard. Uh, if you are looking for the evidence, you can come talk to me. But let's say you sacrifice, and what you look at is that you're sacrificing by doing that. The only thing you're sacrificing is a few years of indulgence, right? And then when you're wrong, if you're proven wrong, oh well, you missed out on a little bit. Is it really a sacrifice? Your life is actually more joyful, is what the statistics say. So uh, the third option is that you don't wager for God, and Christianity proves true. Okay, so that's, that's the greatest consequence, because eternity is forever, okay? Eternity lasts forever, and so what Christianity says is that 
you, when you trust in Jesus as your Savior, he pays the penalty for you. You are now viewed by God as perfect, and you live in perfection forever. And if you have not trusted in Jesus as your Savior, you live in hell forever. The consequence is far greater than uh, what you can ever imagine. The last option is you don't wager for God and atheism proves true. So for Pascal, he looked at these four options and he said, if you're just looking at the, the input versus outcome, the first option makes the most sense. You're getting the best bang for your buck, right? You wager for God and Christianity is proven true. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say you have to, to believe in, uh, in this or uh, you're not looking at things logically. I, but I do think this is one of the things you have to think through. The world's arguments quickly diminish in value. If you think you're going to find satisfaction in, uh, in, in drugs, if you think you're going to find satisfaction in uh, finances, if you think you're going to find satisfaction in sexual uh, uh, revolution, <laughs> if you think you're going to find satisfaction in uh, things of this world, those arguments will quickly diminish. There are so many more consequences, even in this lifetime, then there are benefits. But if you're looking at things in an eternal perspective, if you wager for God and Christianity is proven true, the outcome is so much greater. For Paul, he then continues and he says this. He says, uh, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. For Paul, he says, even in this life, if you are following Jesus, your life becomes orderly. And not only is your life orderly, you find a greater wisdom in, and knowledge in this world. You find a greater love in this world, being united with others. And uh, in all of this, we are growing in our understand, understanding of God's perspective. And so my encouragement for all of you is to invest in Christ. For some of you, maybe you're sitting here thinking, you know, I've always just thought the, the world kind of went black, but this is the first time that I've uh, been really drawn to coming to church. This is your first time here, or it's been a while, and you're questioning whether God even exists. I would love to talk to you. And so in the pew in front of you, there is this trifold thing. Go ahead and rip that right off, right there, just like that. Fill out your name, and in there it talks about, uh, it says, I want guidance on beginning a relationship with God by trusting Jesus as my Savior. You can cross that. Even if you're like, I'm not ready to do that, but I would like to know what it would look like if I were to do that. For some of you, uh, being able to invest in Christ means that you need to know 
a better way to share the good news of Jesus Christ to others. You're looking at the, the richness of the gospel and you're saying, I, I just don't know how to do that. I don't know how to effectively do that. Go ahead and tear this off too. And in the section of saying, I'm interested in, write an evangelism training class. Go ahead and write that down. My encouragement is to be able to help you in any way to be able to show the richness of the gospel to those around us. Maybe for some of you and the rest of us, it's that we don't value people the way that God values us. We don't look at people the way that we should. And there's a couple of different things that you can do. You can join a small group. The more you get to know people, the more you love them. For others, it's I'm looking for opportunities to be able to serve others. I just don't know. I, I've never thought about going to these people and sharing the good news. I've never thought about sharing, uh, serving people. Or maybe I have and I just never had the opportunity. Go ahead and on the I'm interested in, check that box, write down opportunities to serve or something of that nature. My encouragement for all of us is that we don't just hear the scriptures and say, that was a good message. My encouragement is that we hear what God is telling you and start doing something with it. And I think out of any message, this one, uh, the, the truth coming from Colossians chapter 2 about loving people the way that God loved us and seeing the importance of the gospel. Those are two areas of our lives that if our minds could be transformed in any way, that would be the, the place to do it. For us to be able to love people the way God loves people. And for us to be able to tell others about what Jesus has done for them. So if you haven't trusted in Christ as your Savior, today's the day. And if you have, let's look at people the way that God looks at people. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you for giving us your truth through Paul and the Colossian church. I pray, God, that you would help us to uh, understand how much you love us and understand how you love people and help us to be taking opportunities to share that love of Christ to those around us, not just people we know, but the people we don't even know. God, thanks for Paul's example in loving people that he had never met. I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts and work in our, our lives to give us opportunities to share the love of Christ to those around us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.